Good evening. I apologize for the, the wonderful smell of, of chicken out there that greeted you when it came in. You know, and the children's workers, they are being, I would say, rewarded for all of their service. Um, but you're being rewarded for staying in here, I guess. I don't know. So I, I, I don't have anything to compete with the chicken. So I apologize if it, if it bothers you. Um, Acts chapter 2 is where we will be this evening. Acts chapter 2. Last week we started the book of Acts and Acts 1. We introduced it a couple weeks ago. And we're going to be working our way through this text in the year of 2018, Lord willing. Acts 2 is one of the most exciting chapters in the Bible, in my opinion. There is so much that happens in this chapter. There are supernatural things that happen in this book. There are whooshes of wind, and there are flames of fire that show up above Christians' heads. There are people speaking in languages that they've never spoke before. And what's more, there were over 15 different people groups who recognized them. There is a powerful message of the gospel that brings about conviction so much so that over 3,000 souls in one foul swoop, except Christ. And not only that, a Christian baptism service breaks out at the largest Jewish temple in the world. It's an exciting chapter. And Acts 2 is really a lot about a lot of things. Uh, one well-known pastor said, it's hard to outline this chapter because so much of it is based upon the Spirit's moving. And we know that the Spirit moves where He wills. And so as the Holy Spirit moves... The text moves, right? It's about the power of the Holy Spirit, Acts 2 is. It's about the first sermon ever recorded in church history. It's about a Jewish festival that really became better known for the beginnings of the church or the church's birthday. But as I was studying this past week, and the events of this past week were on my mind, and I don't know how they couldn't be on your mind, Acts 2 struck me in, in a different light. Not that I'm trying to snatch something out of the text that isn't there. I'm certainly not trying to be a theological magician pulling a hat or pulling a rabbit out of a hat that, that isn't there and having you be wowed by where did he get that? No. But I thought about verse 36 in Acts chapter 2. Verse 36 says, Therefore let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him, Jesus, Lord in Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Acts 2 is a message to murderers. That sermon that Peter preached was to a group of killers. And this past week, a lot of us have asked the question, what do we do about what's going on in the world? And really, I think Acts 2 lays a pathway for you as a Christian, if you know Christ as Savior, it lays out a course for what we are to do in this world. It sets forth a pattern. It gives the answer to the question that literally the entire world is asking. What is going on? What can we do? So what I want to do here in Acts chapter 2 is I want to walk you really through the action of chapter 2. And then what 
I'll do is I'll kind of settle down once we get to their question after Peter makes this bold statement. You know, verse, the, verse 37, the listeners say, brothers, what do we do? That's where we'll settle down. But what I want to do is just briefly walk you through the action leading up to this. Okay? It's not going to have a nice, clean outline. So if any of you are outliners, I apologize. I'll give you some really good, bold points at the end. Okay? But if you're trying to take notes all along, do your best. I apologize. But just come along and follow me as we work our way through the book of Acts. So at the beginning of this chapter, and really the first 21 verses, we see the remarkable work of the Holy Spirit. Verses 1 through 21 show us the Holy Spirit doing some remarkable things. Now, as a point of comparison, remember, Acts was written by Luke, but so was the Gospel of Luke. And Acts was designed to be the second of two works by Luke. So it's important that if there are things carrying over from Luke to Acts, that we recognize those carryovers. One of them is the work of the Holy Spirit. In Luke chapter 4, verses 18 and 19, we have a statement by Jesus not found in the other Gospels, where Jesus attributes the work being done as undergirded by the Holy Spirit. Christ's birth, his baptism, we see the work of the Holy Spirit, and we see his larger ministry undergirded by the Holy Spirit. And really, in Acts, Luke writes of the Spirit coming on the disciples at Pentecost and the repeated emphasis of the Spirit undergirding the progress of the gospel and the power of the church. So as we start the chapter and we see the work of the Holy Spirit, this was really a continuation of what he had introduced back in the gospel of Luke. Now, as we read in Acts chapter 2, starting in verse 1, when the day of Pentecost had come, they were all together in one place. These are the followers of Jesus. About 120, Acts chapter 1 tells us, both men and women. And suddenly there came from heaven a noise like a violent rushing wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. And there appeared to them tongues of fire distributing themselves, and they rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit was giving them utterance. So each member of this group had a tongue of fire over them. Notice it says that um, in verse 3. And actually, uh, Luke is careful to bring attention to each one of these individuals, not just here, but later on. Um, and and I'll, I'll, we'll talk about that when we get there. But all of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and enabled by the Holy Spirit. And as they began to, uh, as they saw these flames of fire above, one, uh, above each other, they began to speak in known languages. And we know their known languages based on what we're about to read. Verse 5. Now there were Jews living in Jerusalem, devout men from every nation under heaven. And when the sound occurred, the crowd came together and were bewildered because each one of them was hearing them speak in his own language. They were amazed and astonished, saying, Why are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that each we hear each of them in our own language to which we were born? And so in verses 9, 10, 11, you have... 15 different people groups, which we would assume 15 different languages. And the disciples were speaking what? They were speaking the mighty deeds of God, verse 11 says. And they were doing this with the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. Now, there was some confusion obviously going on. Because the people that were there to celebrate Pentecost, they were national Jews, but they were also 
those who had converted to Judaism from different people groups. Uh, so we had, uh, you had different understandings of what was going on. You had what we would call Jewish proselytes, I should say. And they were perplexed about what had happened. In verse 13, some thought that it was actually drunkenness. And so Peter comes on the scene, stands up, and delivers the first sermon recorded in Acts. This is the first sermon of the church. And as he gets up to speak, he first of all draws their attention to what was going on and how they should have understood it in relationship to the Old Testament. And so he brings their attention to this being the work of the Holy Spirit, similar to what Joel had spoken of back in his book, Joel. So verse 14, but Peter, taking his stand with the eleven, raised his voice and declared, the men of Judea and all you who live in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give heed of my words, for these men are not drunk. It's only the third hour of the day. It's 9 a.m. But this is what was spoken of through the prophet Joel. And he goes and, and he gives that, that prophecy from Joel chapter 2, verses 28 through 32. And he tells of the, the things that will be happening in the last days. I'll pour forth my spirit on all mankind. Your sons and daughters shall prophesy. Your young men shall see visions. Your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my bond slaves, both men and women. And I will, days, I will in those days pour forth of my spirit and they will prophesy. And I will grant wonders in the sky above and signs on the earth below. The sun will be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the great and glorious day of the Lord shall come. And it shall be that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Now, not all of what Joel talked about in Joel 2 took place there. In fact, one could make a case that really none of the events that Joel delineated there, the moon turning to blood, the prophecy... Uh, what else? Your sons and daughters prophesying, your young men seeing visions, your old men shall dream dreams. Right? Verse 19, great wonders in the sky above. Those things weren't happening there at Pentecost. Okay? But you did have something happening. And so what Peter was doing here was he was taking the prophecy of Joel, which was clear to delineate that the Holy Spirit was going to do a work at the end times. The Spirit would be poured out on all flesh. Here, it was localized to these followers of Jesus Christ. And they were speaking in known tongues, giving evidence of the pouring out of the Spirit. We could call this the New Covenant ministry of the Holy Spirit. Okay? Where the Holy Spirit now has empowered them. And so what they were seeing was analogous to what was going to be taking place in the end times. Okay? So the Holy Spirit was very active, very much at work. The other aspect that we see leading up to Peter's sermon here was the resurrection and the kingly position of Jesus. Okay? So Peter, first of all, says, what you're seeing is the work of God. It's the work of the Holy Spirit. And Joel spoke of the Spirit's work, which you would be familiar with. Again, he's talking to a Jewish audience. So let's just take a step back. Remember the Great Commission back in chapter 1? Okay? And you shall be witnesses of me beginning where? Jerusalem, right? So that's exactly what's taking place. They're beginning at Jerusalem. Peter is speaking. He's preaching the gospel beginning at Jerusalem. So he draws their attention, first of all, to the Holy Spirit. But second of all, he draws their attention to Jesus of Nazareth. In particular, his resurrection and his ascension. 
Look at verse 22. Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know. This man, delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. But God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death, since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. And then he goes on to quote Psalm 16. Now keep in mind the audience here. This is a Jewish audience. So their familiarity was going to be with the Old Testament. And Peter, in preaching the gospel, knowing his audience, is drawing their attention to something that they could all agree on, the Old Testament. This is a skillful proclamation of the gospel by Peter, being very aware of who he's talking to, bringing up texts of scripture that none of them could argue about. They knew that Psalm chapter 16 was about the Davidic king, King David. He wrote it. But notice that in verse, uh, let's see here, verse 27 here of Acts 2, David makes a statement that clearly wasn't about himself. He says, because you will not abandon my soul to Hades, nor allow your Holy One to undergo decay. And Peter recognizes that this clearly wasn't about David. Look at verse 29. Brethren, I may confidently say to you that regarding the patriarch David, that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. So clearly, he underwent decay. But Jesus of Nazareth did not. And you should have been recognizing him. You should have recognized him. First of all, because of his signs that they spoke of, that they all saw. But then second of all, because of his resurrection, of which the apostles, the disciples, were eyewitnesses. And they're speaking of it. But not only that, his ascension into heaven. Look in verse 30. And so because he was a prophet and knew that God had sworn to him with an oath to seat one of his descendants on his throne, he looked ahead and spoke of the resurrection of Christ, that he neither abandoned Hades nor did his flesh suffer decay. This Jesus God raised up again, to which we're all witnesses. We talked about that. Therefore, having been exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he's poured forth this, the Holy Spirit which you see today. For it was not David who ascended to heaven, but he himself. So what Peter does is he quotes yet another psalm, Psalm 110. And he quotes it by saying, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. So Peter is pointing to the mighty works of Christ, of Jesus, which they all knew about. The resurrection of Jesus, which they were eyewitnesses of, at least the apostles were. And then the ascension, again, which the apostles were witnesses of. All of those things pointing back to Old Testament prophecy that spoke of them. And so Peter makes his argument. And then he says, verse 36, Therefore, let all of the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ. Now, to you and I, those terms for Jesus are familiar. We use them often. We sing them often. But to a Jewish audience, these would have been either inflammatory or terribly convicting. And praise the Lord, we know the end of the story. Lord, in that they were responsible to submit, and Christ, 
that Jesus was the one that was prophesied in the Old Testament, the text that they all agreed upon. And so what happened? And ultimately, how did they respond? Now look at verse 37. When they heard this, they were pierced to the heart. That verb there in the original language means they were literally stabbed. They were stabbed to the heart. It was piercing to them. And they said, now note this, to Peter and the rest of the apostles. So there was an acknowledgement not just of the speaker, but the other witnesses of the resurrected Christ. And what did they say? Well, first of all, look at the term that they used. Brothers. God had changed their heart to make them welcome the message that they had been given. Brothers. God had already done a work in their heart. And look what they ask. What shall we do? Now mind you, this is a message to murderers. They weren't unfamiliar with what happened to blasphemers. Right? If they'd done it once, they could do it again. And oh, by the way, they were going to do it to Peter. Maybe not these individuals, but Peter was going to die for the message that he was speaking. Right? This just wasn't his time. This was something that was going to cost him his life. But they responded, brothers, what shall we do? And here's where we enter and, and say, okay, so in light of the message to the murderers, in light of what do we do here? What could they do? The re really, the two points that I want to leave with you today, and these are not anything new. It's not anything new. But what do we take what message do we have for our society? What, what message of hope do we have? First of all, verse 38, Peter said to them, repent. I just want to settle on that word, repent. This word repent means a changing of one's mind. Okay? It's a reorientation of one's mind. This is a personal decision to turn from sin to God through Christ. I think of 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 and verse 9, where we have a clear definition of what repentance is, where when Paul is writing to the Thessalonian Christians, he says that you turned to God from idols. See, it's, it's this way. So imagine that over here is unbelief, okay? And imagine over here is belief or righteousness. In our spiritually dead state, not only were we pointed towards unrighteousness and unbelief, but we were actively pursuing it, okay? Romans chapter 5 says that we were enemies of the cross of Jesus Christ, not just neutral or passive bystanders. We were actively opposed in our sin. So if that is unbelief in our unsaved state, we were walking towards it. We're heading that way. And frankly, the only thing that's holding us back from going headlong into sin is what we would call common grace, God's grace. Because in Romans 1, we see what happens when those who reject the goodness of God continue to pursue sin. God gives them over. That phrase occurs three times in Romans 1. God gives them over. So here we are, pursuing unrighteousness, going the opposite way, repentance, is the result of God, I'm going to put it kind of a goofy way, but I think this is accurate, changing our chooser. 
because I am actively choosing to go that way in my sin before salvation. God changes my heart so that I now go towards righteousness. I turn from sin, from idolatry, and I turn to God. Not because God pulls me this way, whoa, no, but God changed my heart. That's what it means to be born again. That we are changed and we turn to God. Why? Because He inclined us to. Not because I was given all of the data and I added it all up and I figured, yeah, it's going to end badly, so I better, you know, start heading this way. No, no, no. In fact, even this text tells us as much. Look at verse 39. For the promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will do what? Will call to himself. Right? So the reality is that we have turned from sin, but in this context, we are turning to Jesus as our king. Okay? Now, to the Jews, this was significant. This was Messiah. Christ. But to us, he is no less king. And the fact of the matter is, is that Jesus is king over all, and not just of the Jews. Every man will kneel and acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord. Psalm, or I'm sorry, Philippians chapter 2, verses 9 through 11, tells us that, right? That at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow. Every knee in this room will bow. And every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to God's glory. Jesus is king whether you acknowledge it or not. If you don't know Christ, that doesn't make Jesus not king. It just means that you aren't making him your king. You are pursuing this. And so what Peter was telling to these Jews who felt convicted, who understood the gravity of their own guilt, he tells to you, repent. Turn from sin. Turn to Jesus as your king. That Jesus is Lord and King means that we must submit to him. As I read in, in chapter 2, verse 39, also we think of, of, of the work of God in the saving process. You think of John chapter 6, verse 44, where, where Jesus tells those who are listening to him that no one comes to Christ unless the Father draws him. So it's a work of God drawing us to Christ, changing our hearts. And again, those of you who are, are, are more familiar with this passage, more familiar especially with the New Testament, you understand that when Peter says repent, necessarily with repentance is faith. Okay? It's never one at the expense of the other. So faith always accompanies repentance. Right? That's why we read faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Without faith is it, it is impossible to please God. But when Peter says repent, he's not somehow circumventing the necessary faith. You know, it, it goes hand in hand. All right? Now, to that end, there's one other thing that we should take note of in this passage. And I think it's important as far as the message for not only this audience, but the message for you and I. The message, first of all, to repent. But then second of all, notice what he says. Repent, and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Be baptized. So is Peter saying that baptism is a necessary part of salvation, that in order for you to be saved, you have to be baptized? 
Is he saying that in order for your sins to be forgiven, that you have to be baptized? No, he's not saying that. You have to understand here, in the culture, baptism was a clear sign of identity. There was baptism within Judaism, where proselytes who would come outside of national Judaism, they would come in, they would be baptized and identify with the Jewish faith. There were also those who would be baptized who were followers of John, right? So we read earlier in John's Gospel, the, uh, you know, the Gospel of John, where you know, the followers of John were being baptized. Even Jesus himself identified right, with the message of John, fulfilling all righteousness. What's going on here is they were having, they were demonstrating an outward identification of obedience with what had taken place on the inside. Okay? This was publicly identifying the convert with the body of believers. So when Peter says, repent and each of you be baptized, he's saying repent and obey. Give the outward sign of your repentance. Believer's baptism represents more than just being immersed in a tank of water in front of a group of believers. It is a public statement stating that the one baptized was covenanting with other believers to a life of obedience and public Christian identity. So there's two nuances, I think, that, that should be drawn out of this. One is more cultural to what we have here and now, and we, we kind of see it in our day. But I think another is, is a reflection of, of the, the local church reality. First one is this. So in Middle Eastern culture, when you have someone convert to Christianity, there's an element to where intellectually, those who know that person can be in agreement. They can go along with it. But there is something about the, the, the process of baptism that is, that is very offensive. And here, what would have taken place when Peter is saying, be baptized, he's telling them that they need to make a public statement of identification that separates them from their former way of living. It distinguishes them and identifies them with what is new. We even have people in our church who have accepted Jesus Christ as their Savior. But because of perhaps cultural traditions, maybe perhaps because of family ties uh, uh, to other religious traditions, that their families have been very reticent for them to be baptized. I think that's a, a fair comparison here. As a matter of fact, I'm, I'm thinking of one couple in particular where um, she grew up uh, a particular Protestant denomination and um, she had professed Christ but had never been biblically baptized. And her family was very much against that. Wanting to honor her family but also understanding that she was about to be married, she waited until she got married before she got baptized. Being married, she was underneath the authority of her husband instead of her parents where she lived. And once she got married, literally like two or three weeks after, I think it was, she got baptized. And her family was agreeable to that because they were, she was no longer underneath her family's authority. But I think of others where, especially those of you who, who perhaps have converted out of Catholicism, where you were baptized as a baby. And, and that is a very spiritually significant event. If you ever go to a funeral mass, I mean, that's one of the things that they, they really hold on to as far as eternal security. We feel confident that the waters of baptism as an infant washed away those sins. And so as an adult, or maybe as an individual who has just converted to true Christianity, 
following through in a step of baptism was really a slap in the face of what was done before. And that's exactly what this would have been too. Okay? But that's exactly what the cost of discipleship requires. There are no closet Christians. So does baptism save? No. Does baptism wash away sins? No. However, baptism is a pretty big deal. Jesus told the disciples before he left, go into all the world and preach the gospel, Matthew 28, 19. But then he also says, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Why would he make that such a big deal if it wasn't a big deal? You know, Paul says, you know, he's glad that he didn't baptize because of the amount of favoritism that played into it. But really what it came down to was Christians get baptized. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you will honor the Lord by obeying in this way. Now, notice what happens here in verse 40. And with many other words, he solemnly testified and kept on exhorting them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. Verse 41. So then, those who had received his word were baptized. And that day there were added about 3,000 souls. The necessary link between conversion is seen here and evidence of conversion. Okay? So, if I could put it this way, this wasn't simply an easy believism for the followers of, of Peter, those who listened, those who heard, those who repented. They repented of their sin, but then participated in baptism. Now you say, wait a second, how do 3,000 people get baptized at one time? So if, if you, I don't know if you have pictures in your Bible, they might be in the back, or you can Google it or whatever. But the, the, the models of the ancient temple, the temple there in Jerusalem, they had these little like areas, these basins, where there was multiple pools of water where proselytes of of Judaism would come and, and outwardly identify uh, with, with, with Judaism. Well, these people heard the gospel, and there would have been ample space for all of these converts to be baptized, except being baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. And that's exactly what happened. And not only were they baptized in the name of Jesus Christ, but I think there's a significant detail there at the end of verse 41. And that day, there were added about 3,000 souls. They were added to their number 3,000 souls. Why bring this up? Because this is the first reference in the book of Acts to a defined group of believers that identified with one another. And this is my second point in relationship to Acts. And this would also be really my second point as it comes to what message do we carry to our society? What message was given to these murderers and what message do we carry to our society? Yes, repent, but join with other believers. Identify with them. Be a part of them. Come alongside them. Worship with them. Be accountable to them. In other words, join your church. Okay? This is not simply just make a confession and have your own personal relationship experience with Jesus. That is... It just doesn't exist within the body of Christ. I mean... Acts 2 is about spirit baptism. Remember back in Acts 1 where Jesus says, wait in Jerusalem and I'll send the Spirit. You'll be baptized with the Holy Spirit. But yet in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, 
Paul talks about spirit baptism as in you were all baptized as believers into the body of Christ. So it's not just this individual singular moment where you have kind of spiritual superpowers. It's now being baptized and actually being part of a greater entity, i.e. the body of Christ. And this is, and I don't mean to throw anyone or any person under the bus, but I think this is where a lot of 20th century evangelism missed the boat. Because it was very much, you know, you'd have individuals who perhaps would get large crowds or whatever, and they'd preach a gospel of accept Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. But then it was kind of, we'll leave you to yourself. Go find a good church, wherever that's going to be, But there wasn't that direct connection, direct identification with a specific believing group of, a specific body of believers that you would identify with in baptism, and then secondly, that you would be held accountable to. This is, again, church membership is not saving, but it is important. I would say it's biblical. For you to identify with your local church. If this is your church, be a member. Study the word. If you believe in church discipline, you have to believe in church membership. If you believe that the church should hold their, their, their individuals accountable and help them grow, and, and if you believe that identifying with those believers is important, then, then what would prohibit you from calling your local church, your local church. So the message that we have to our society is you have a king. Repent. Turn from your sin. Make that king your Lord. But then be a part of a community of believers. Join a church. Join a gospel teaching church. I don't think we should just overlook that, nor do I think we should short sell the significance of the local church. How, how in the world do you read the New Testament without seeing the significance of the local church? Seriously, just keep reading Acts. It's got a local church all over it. I mean, two individuals lied to the local church about how much they gave. That was a big deal to God. You have Paul writing letters to local churches. It's a big deal deal. And it's not just Lone Ranger Christianity. It's not just a Christian who can turn on their television set and watch a television preacher or download a podcast and listen to a pastor who doesn't know who they are, doesn't even know they exist other than maybe a contribution in the mail. That is not how God designed his bride to function. Okay. So that being said, The message for murderers of Jesus Christ is the same message for mass murderers of today. And it's the same message for you and me. Repent. Be saved. Join together with other believers. Now, like I told you before, we look at this proposition really as nothing new. And this is not novel. And honestly, we might even look at it as nothing special. But looking back on Wednesday, you had one individual who made a difference Now, it was for evil, but one person, one person literally turned this country, as it were, upside down and 
shock the world. If one person can wreak havoc, what impact can one person do when he carries the saving gospel of Jesus Christ to another person? It might not make as big of a dent or make the, the news rounds. But if each one of us took notice of an unbeliever that God has placed in our lives, and we took the time to share this news of hope with that person, what could God do? That's the message that we have. That's the responsibility. That's what we've been called to do. And that's what Acts is about. The gospel will go forward. The church will be built. So to that end, what we're going to do here in the next 10 minutes, or maybe less, I've asked three men to come and just spend time praying. Okay? Those three men are going to pray for, for one of three things. So uh, Gordon Austin is going to come up. He's going to pray for himself. And as you pray, I want you to pray for you, yourself, and how God wants you, if you know Christ, to be a disciple maker. Okay? God, use me as a disciple maker. Okay? So after that, Jamie Knutson's going to come forward, and he's going to pray, and he's going to pray that God would use the rest of you as disciple makers. If you know Christ, God, use the people in this room to go and make disciples. Use the people that are upstairs working with our children. Make them disciple makers. And then after that, Paul Grenier is going to come and pray. He's going to pray that God will give us fruit from our disciple making, from the proclamation of the gospel. These are the three things that, that you know, not to... Well, I'll bring one legacy into it, but, but our, our planning for this year, our, one of our evangelistic goals for this year is really to devote more time to, to prayer with one another about God doing his work. And this is that. We've seen the message. We've seen the call. Let's invoke God and have him work. So, Gordon, you come. You would pray for specific roles, and then Jamie, and then Paul, and then I'll go ahead and close. Okay. Father God, thank you that nearly 32 years ago, coming up in a couple weeks, you called me by your name and saved me by your grace and set my feet on a different path. I know that there have been years spent, and, and I lament that and laziness, not being what I ought to be. But I trust that, Lord, you will make me the man that you desire for me to be. Continue to teach me and help me to be a disciple maker. Give me and those in here a deep, deep compassion for those who are lost. I trust that you have many souls in this city and the surrounding area who you have called by your name. And you've tasked us to reach out to those individuals who are lost, friends and family, neighbors, and speak to them the, of the saving power of the Lord Jesus Christ and begin to walk them through the disciple-making process as you laid out in Matthew, teaching them whatsoever things you have commanded us to follow after you. We pray that we will teach others to do the same. Give us a heart for that, Lord. Lament any laziness in our life and studying your word and not being about diligently pursuing that business. Confess 
any sin in our life that hinders us from engaging in that work and draw us ever near to your son love him with all of our heart soul mind and strength pursue Christ likeness in all that we do to be a light in the darkness of this world and make a difference for Christ that his fame would be spread abroad in our homes uh, in the areas where we can go to school where we work where we play, where we vacation, with those who are around us, Lord, that they'll see a, a tremendous difference in our life. Help us to commit, even this very night, to make the changes that are necessary in our lives so that we can be used by you in mighty ways. And we'll thank you for that in Christ's name. Amen. We thank you, Lord, that uh, your arm is not short, that it cannot save. We thank you for the power of your word. Uh, it does not fail. We thank you um, for calling us to be a part of the work that you do to draw souls to yourself. We thank you that we as a church, Grace Church of Mentor, have a mission um, and that mission is to make disciples, as your word tells us. And so we pray for, for help to be about that mission. Help us not to ever be complacent and just comfortable with our church, our building, our coming together. We enjoy that and we, we love that. We love to worship you together. But help us also to be a lighthouse individuals light in our community and, and salt help us to live lives that reflect the glory of God that are uh, um, attractive to those who are seeking for answers in this uh, hopeless world um, you Lord Jesus are the only source of hope and we want to appoint them to you so give us boldness in doing that help us to live lives that are already uh, pointing them to Christ, but also help us to be salt, help us to speak uh, when there is that opportunity and help us to, to seek those opportunities and, and to be responsive to the Holy Spirit in his prompting us to, to speak for Christ. We pray for our relationships with our coworkers and with our neighbors. We... Um, we, we pray for the ministries of Grace Church of Mentor to children throughout the year. We thank you for our Sunday school teachers and pray that you would use them to, to speak the gospel clearly to children, that they may know of a Jesus Christ who, who saves, who forgives of sin. We pray for... Uh, women's Bible studies and men's Bible studies in our Sunday school hour in which your word is proclaimed. We pray that uh, the lost would be saved. We thank you that you're not willing that any should perish. <clears throat> we thank you, Lord, for your grace and your mercy, which is so abundant. 
And so help us, Lord, when we have opportunity to witness, to do so with boldness. And help us, Lord, when we are discouraged because of times in which we have uh, tried to be faithful in witnessing for you and have been met with a deaf ear or a stiff arm. Uh, Lord, may that not um, prevent us from being obedient and, and persevering in the work that you've called us to do. It is a great task, and you are a great God, and we're so thankful that you have left us here with work to do, not just to, to wait, but um, we thank you that you save souls, and we pray that you would save more and more this year through our lives and through the ministries here at Grace. In Jesus' name, amen. Lord, you told us that the, unless the Lord build a house, they labor in vain and build it. I think of the, the ministry of reconciliation you've given to, to we believers to spread your word, to tell people the truth of their, their sin, your holiness, our position before you, that only through trusting what Jesus did on the, on the cross to be sufficient payment for our sin that we can have our sins forgiven, that we can stand before you sinless. Lord, I confess I don't understand how that works. I think of my own family and the flesh, my brothers and sisters and, and parents and, and how they have said no to you after many times of hearing it and how I was granted repentance when I heard the message. As we go out and, and speak your word, I just pray for, for fruit that you would, would grant However that works, Lord, you have to change hearts. For some reason, you're, you've chosen, chosen to use us. You've given us the, the privilege to, to be your ambassadors. I pray you would be pleased to do that, that you would give us your ideas, verses to say that we'd be clinging to your word and, and not our own ideas. I think of the just all the efforts of, of this ministry and others that are seeking to glorify you in the eyes of, of unbelievers, to, to bring people to the, to the understanding of what they need to do. I pray you would grant repentance to those that hear your word. The Apostle Paul prayed for open doors of utterance that, that he would be able to speak, that he would have listening ears. In other places, he prayed for the, that the word would go forth in power and would grow. We pray the same, Father. We ask that your word would grow through the, the members of this, of this church. I think of the, the children's workers upstairs having a, a shindig. And we think of all their efforts with the, with the children week in and week out. And we pray that fruit would be, would be born, would be would be brought forth as a result of those efforts and, and those of us in this room for the just that you'd help us to be seeking your will for looking for opportunities praying for that you'd be pleased to 
to work through us. I pray in Jesus' name, amen. And God, as we close, we thank you so much that um, just for these souls in this room, thank you for their desire to be with one another and to, to honor you and to hear your word. Lord, I thank you for the gifting that is represented in this room and, and just the, the, the miracles, really, that are represented in this room. Lord, as we go out, may we be mindful of the, the individual faces, the neighbors, the friends, the coworkers, the, 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 the souls that come to mind where when questions are asked, especially in light of the, what's going on in society, God, that, that uh, we might be ready with an answer, but an answer of hope. Uh, that you are king and your son is on his throne. Lord, um, we know that though, uh, we just sang it earlier, though the wrong is often so strong, God, you are the ruler yet. And so we give you praise and thanks for that hope. Lord, may we be mindful not only of the task before us, but Lord, for the souls that uh, we go uh, home with tonight, our spouses, our children, um, those who... Um, that, that you have given us the most time with, that we might be a, a godly testimony to them, starting with them, Lord, investing in them. We love you. We thank you again for this time. May your will be done, and may your name be glorified in how we live. In Christ's name, amen.